Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Michael Humer, professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He is the author of many books, including The Problem of Political Authority, which is the subject of a previous Free Thoughts episode. His new book is Justice Before the Law. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's jump right into the title, Justice Before the Law. Many people seem to think that those two concepts are highly related, at least, but your title immediately differentiates them. Why? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's partly uh, a pun because you hear the phrase justice before the law, but also uh, it's a short version of the thesis. So right, so sometimes the legally prescribed outcomes in the so-called justice system are in fact unjust. And in those cases, I argue you should do justice rather than doing what the law requires. How much does it matter, the legal philosophy jurisprudence side of this, how we define law, just laws, unjust laws, just legal systems, totalitarian legal systems, those are all versions of law. So what, but if we have a democracy and a representative government, it seems that that kind of law is very different than, say, North Korea right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, some, like, some legal systems are more unjust than others, so... You know, like the, the law in North Korea is uh, way worse than the law in the United States, right? And actually, like a lot of what happens in my book is that I criticize the U.S. legal system for having various severe systematic injustices. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't want people to get the impression that it's bad by world standards. It's actually excellent by world standards. Um, and, yeah, you know, sort of like towards the end, I mentioned some of the ways in which our legal system is better than other possible legal Right. Like, you know, we we allow people to have a, a defense attorney. We allow people to confront the witnesses and like we tell them what the charges against them are. Right. And they get to see the evidence against them before the trial. You know, so there's all that stuff, you know, which is really good. Um, you know, but still like so like we're closer to we're closer to being just than most societies are. But there's still a bunch of stuff that's unjust. Right. Does your thesis need to have a theory of law? Like, do, do you need to get involved in, say, like the Hart-Fuller debate or something for what law is if it's going to be different than justice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, good. So, I mean, um, you might think that um, morality and justice have some effect on what the law actually is, right, which I hear from the natural law people. But I only need there to be enough difference between these two concepts that it's possible for there to be an unjust law. And I don't really think that anybody denies that. Okay, so, you know, like there's the famous saying, an unjust law is no law at all from, uh, from Augustine. Um, but I don't think that, I don't think um, people mean that literally, right? Okay, so like uh, the fugitive slave laws. So those were unjust. I don't think the natural law people would say that literally there were no fugitive slave laws. Right? Like there were these things written down, but they weren't laws. Or, right, or I don't think that they would say, actually, cocaine use is legal in the United States. You know, in, in spite of the fact that the Controlled Substances Act prohibits it, because that's not a law, because that's unjust. I don't think they would say that. Right? I think they mean, like when they say an unjust law is not, is no law at all, what they really mean is like, uh, it's not a legitimate law, or something like it's a morally illegitimate law, or it shouldn't be enforced, or something like that, which actually I, you know, I agree with, right? 
Yeah, so it's committing you to some sort of positivism. I mean, on the base on the baseline level of your thesis, your only question is kind of: Is there a apparatus called the state that is enforcing this? And if that is true, then that is sufficient to call it a law for the purposes of your thesis. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, so one thing is like, if I'm wrong about what the word law means, that doesn't matter. Then you could just like rephrase my thesis just before, just as before the whatever you call these things. <laughs> okay. But however, um, I'm not saying that morality has nothing to do with the content of the law, right? So like, um, for one thing, the actual text of laws often contains moral terms. So like there's the stuff about unreasonable searches and seizures, and then there's a thing about, you know, um, just compensation, right? You can't take private property for public use without just compensation. There's no further guidance on what is just. So. Okay, so that's one thing. But also, just if there's some, if there's some unclarity in what the law means, then, you know, you can reasonably argue that it should be interpreted in accordance with moral principles. Right, so, and, and you know, and there's like the Dworkin thesis about how, um, you know, you should take like the most coherent moral view that's consistent with the text of the laws. But all of that still allows the possibility that sometimes there are laws that are simply unjust. So what about defining justice? So we, we talked about defining law, but how is justice going to be defined? Yeah, I mean, basically justice is giving everyone their due. And uh, what does that mean? Well, like uh, people have rights, and so you have to respect their rights. Like they're owed respect for their rights. Also, though, if somebody has committed a crime, then what they deserve is punishment that's proportionate to the crime. If somebody has not committed a crime, what they deserve is to be acquitted, or you know, they deserve to not have anything done to them. Right? And that, that's like the basics of what justice is. So you don't feel, because you make some very big claims based on some very, uh, I wouldn't say simple arguments, but I think many people would regard your arguments, who many people who are familiar with philosophy in particular, and we've talked about this before when you've been on the, the show, that your approach to philosophy is very much about intuition and seemingness for lack of maybe you would not like that term, but seemingness is, is important to your philosophy, which makes it seem less obscure and more almost simple minded than what people come to expect from philosophy that seemingness matters at all. Like this seems wrong. Well, it just seems wrong. That's fine. What is it? Why does it matter that something seems wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, well, you know, in fact, all philosophies are based upon what seems to the person with that philosophy to be the case. Um, now, I mean, like the, the reason why my arguments um, more often seem like simple is, is that uh, I'm not trying to deliberately overcomplicate things. And, right. And my view is, um, you know, like you should have like the simplest theory that's compatible with our evidence is most likely to be correct. And, uh, but also, I mean, but I think like other people have, uh, you know, many thinkers just have a taste for intellectual complications. And so they like to co complicate a theory as much as they can, right? So, um, but, you know, like I have, uh, I have simple arguments like, um, you know, this is why you shouldn't convict someone for um, violating an unjust law because um, in general, you shouldn't knowingly bring about unjust harms. Don't knowingly unjustly harm someone. Like, that seems right to me. <laughs> and being punished for violating an unjust law is an unjust punishment. And, uh, you know, and convicting someone causes them to be punished. 
So, you know, don't. Well, does this, does this matter to rule of law concerns? Uh, do, are they, are they wholly irrelevant to this? Because we could talk about something like the Controlled Substances Act or the Fugitive Slave Law and say there was, that was a time when a lot of people, that seemed like a just law to people. And it's still on the books. And until it's removed from the books, then that law should be enforced because that's what the rule of law is. Otherwise, the state is pure force. No no rhyme or reason, just pure force. So does it? Does the rule of law, as one consideration, matter to this unjust laws thesis? Yeah, yeah. So, so we're thinking about like the drug laws. Yeah. Well, any any law, like until until such time as the law is removed. Yeah. So I mean, uh, like um, you know, I should say I'm presupposing that the drug laws are unjust when I use this example. <laughs> and if you want more about that, read my paper, America's Unjust Drug War. Um, but yeah, okay. So, um, so I say, yeah, like if, uh, if you're on a jury and, um, the defendant is accused of violating the drug laws, you should vote to acquit regardless of whether they did it or not. Right. Uh, and why? Because the drug laws are unjust and you shouldn't, un shouldn't unjustly harm someone. And then people say like, oh, but what about the rule of law? And I'm not even sure what that means. Is that just like a completely question begging objection? Like the rule of law means you have to be punished if you violated the law, right? Because then, uh, no, I think the rule of law means that. I mean, it's. I agree, it's difficult to define, but there's a difference between saying Bob the policeman decides whatever he wants to punish you for, and sometimes Bob does that according to just, and sometimes according to unjust ideas that pop into his head randomly without any other thing that controls his attitudes versus that Bob does not entirely get to decide this. And there are other things that decided maybe a more legitimate thing than Bob. I mean, Bob probably is not the arbiter of all moral justice. And so that therefore Bob following a law is at least more often than not is what the rule of law is. Yeah. I mean, um, you're like, let's distinguish two things, right? I'll, I'll call it the positive and the negative rule of law. So the negative rule of law is you don't get punished unless you violated law, right? So like the cop cannot decide to arrest you when you haven't broken any law. Positive rule of law is you have to be punished if you did violate a law. And, um, you know, so, okay. And, um, yeah, I believe in the negative rule of law. I don't believe in the positive rule of law. Right. So like, and I don't see what the big problem is if Bob like doesn't arrest some people or, you know, the cops sometimes don't arrest people who um, violated the drug laws, which by the way, is happening all the time anyway, mostly because, you know, the cops are just not that good at their job, right? Like most of the time when you break the law, you don't get arrested at all. Not because the cop decided not to arrest you, but they just don't know. They don't know you did. Um, but the, but the idea is that we, we, we are concerned about the rule of Bob. Let's, let's call it for this discussion, the rule of Bob or the rule of Kim Jong-un or whoever, that the rule of Bob is inherently suspect due to its, the discretion that's allowed and any sense of a role, a role that Bob has to play as a cop, as an attorney, as a prosecutor, as a judge, uh, that is, that is beyond his pure moral sense. Cause it seems that you're, you're kind of advocating a system of complete, subjectivity of enforcing or not enforcing laws, even for actors within the state based on whether or not they understand that something is moral or immoral, which seems dangerous, correct? Uh, 
Well, that, so I don't completely see the danger. So, right, so, you know, again, drawing the distinction between the negative and positive rule of law principles. Um, so I don't think anyone should ever be punished for not breaking the law, but sometimes you shouldn't be punished even though you did break the law. I don't see how this is dangerous. And you might worry about like, uh, maybe there could be favoritism or corruption. Like um, maybe, you know, you acquit people who are your friends, even though, you know, even though they did something that was really wrong. Okay, uh, and of course, if that happens, then, you know, somebody should like prosecute you for corruption or whatever, or fire you from your job or whatever. And obviously you shouldn't do that. Like, so, you know, obviously you shouldn't um, just like let people go who did serious crimes, right? But like that fact doesn't mean that you shouldn't let people go who didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> so, and you know, like when I say, oh, you know, like you should acquit people who, who only violated an unjust law. I'm not saying you should acquit anyone at any time for any reason, right? I'm not saying that you should acquit people on a whim. Like, and, you know, like, I'm not saying that any arbitrary opinion that you have, you should act on. Like, if you arbitrarily, for no reason, decided that the murder law is unjust, that does not mean that now you should acquit murderers, right? <laughs> Rather, you should correct your ridiculous opinion because the murder law isn't unjust. So what about a law that prohibits the murdering, going back to the Fugitive Slave Act, that prohibits the murdering of the slavers who are trying to catch those slaves? There could be some people who disagree about whether or not defending with lethal force in that situation is just or unjust. Uh, so in those situations, could we keep bringing up the, the drug war, and I'm with you. It's, uh, it's, it's quite morally clear. Uh, that this is it's unjust to put someone in a cage for putting something into their body. I agree with you entirely on that. But what about the the harder case? Uh, when you can use lethal force, when you can protect someone, say, from slavery with lethal force or just non-lethal force, and other many, many other examples we could come up with of less clear. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, like like in the slave case, like I think, no, yeah, the slave can totally defend himself. The third party can defend himself against the slavery so. Um But yeah, but like so, but there are cases that are unclear, but then um, that just means that it's unclear whether you should acquit or convict, right? Um, but that's just the way the world is. Like sometimes it's unclear what you should do. And then, and then what do you do? Well, just try to figure it out as best you can, right? I guess, you know, and but like most people are not that good at it. Like among other things, you should read the literature, because there's going to be like a, if there's a controversial issue, there's going to be like some discussion of it among smart people, among ethicists and such like that. And you should read that and see, you know, see if they have good arguments and such. This seems highly demanding. I mean, just even for a system wherein there is widespread moral disagreement and widespread ignorance of people who not only will not be reading that, and but they will not understand it, but they will be asked to be on juries. And we could empower people with let's say not having Mike Humor's moral sense, uh, empower them to make decisions in your, in your thesis. It should be, well, it's something like you should have a good moral sense. You should read about these things. And then when you're an actor in the criminal justice system, you should act on that moral sense. Uh, but that, but that requires a lot of these people. And so maybe, so maybe just like the backdrop of being like, just follow the law. Like that's the most we could ask of people. 
for, yeah. in many of these situations because right. they're not moral philosophers. Like, yeah. because, and so I they, mean, they can just follow the law. I mean, I would, I would point out that, you know, jury duty is pretty demanding. I mean, evaluating the evidence in many cases is pretty demanding. And like, you know, you can just sit there for hours and hours, right? Also, like most cases are not morally controversial. Like, okay, most laws, there's not really a big moral controversy about them. So, right, so, and I say this to say, you know, it's not that demanding, but in most cases, right? But maybe it's demanding in some cases, okay? But nevertheless, like, um, you know, there's this defendant who is going to go to prison for like many years. Like he will lose many years of his life. And so like the pain that's going to be inflicted on that person is is much bigger than the suffering that you're going to undergo in having to figure out whether it's just to punish him. So it doesn't seem so demanding in that context to say, well, you've got to exert some significant effort to make sure that he really deserves to be punished. And by the way, like in the end, if, if it's like, like, I think if there's no very strong case that he deserves to be punished, then you should acquit. So like if after looking at this, you know, you look at the issue, you're like, it's totally unclear that he did anything wrong, then you should acquit. That's a presumption. The presumption of innocence, which we do have. Yeah, we have the presumption of factual innocence, but also there should be a presumption of uh, moral innocence or something like that. Like, if there's no very strong reason why the action that he did should be considered wrong, then you should consider it okay. Well, what about, you mentioned, because you get into, of course, many different aspects of the criminal justice system, in particular in the book. Uh, you mentioned prison. Um, it seems like there are relevant considerations, for example, how nice the prisons are. Uh, in in Norway, you have Anders Breivik, you know, who killed 77 people in a rampage who, you know, sued for his human rights violations because he couldn't get a PS, PS4, I believe, is what is what the problem was. So that should be a consideration, like how nice prison is, if you're one of the people who's voting to acquit or convict or not. Um, well, that is a consideration. But I don't think this requires very detailed knowledge about, you know, whether they get PlayStation 3s or 4s. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the, like the fact that there's widespread abuse in the prisons is relevant. Um, and like, I think that raises the, raises the bar for when somebody deserves to go to prison. Right? Um, you know, basically like, yeah, like I think um, serious violent criminals should go to prison, but other people generally shouldn't. Right, and that's partly because there's a significant risk of severe abuse in the prison. So you're not a prison abolitionist, though. No, because I'm not insane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I've seen these, you know, prison, prison abolitionists. Like, you know, there's some association of, of trial lawyers who say, you know, we need to we need to abolish prison now, whatever, and all this rhetoric on their website. And then, like, I didn't see anything about, and what's going to happen to all the murderers that we let free? What are they going to do after we let them free? And then they're just going to be like murdering the rest of us. And it's sort of like as if they have no idea that there's such a thing as violent crime. But anyway, yeah. Or maybe more like the Ted Bundys, because most murderers, even murderers, age out of murder and don't end up being serial murderers. They might kill once in a crime of passion, but by the time they're 35, they're not really a risk anymore. So it's more like the Ted Bundy's well, level, correct? 35 sounds low. I think when they're 65, they're, they're going to stop. <laughs> um, but you can commit a lot of crimes. You know, like, so most criminals um, are going to commit more crimes, you know, if they're not, they're not locked up. 
And um, you know, like most of them commit more crimes after being released from prison, after they serve their term, even in the status quo. But if they didn't have the term at all, they'd be committing more crimes during that time. And Well, this seems like your theory uh, is, this is, you know, we're kind of breaking it down with, with these. Again, when I say simple, I, I don't mean that as an insult. I, I like your approach. But one thing it would need then is a theory of punishment, which is usually not a very simple discussion. Like, what is the purpose ends uses of punishment and how can the state or does the state even need to be involved in this? How, how can someone, some entity put that onto someone else and what is the reason for it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like basically I think the traditional reasons all have some force. So there are multiple reasons why we punish people. Right. So um, like if we could rehabilitate people, that would be great. Uh, we're really not very good at that, but Anyway, deterrence, I think, is a legitimate rationale, and there's some deterrence effect from um, punishing people. But, you know, like social scientists say that most of the deterrence effect has to do with the certainty of actually getting caught rather than the severity of the punishment. So it's, uh, it's more efficient if we could sort of like invest in at least having something done to all of the criminals, right, or almost all of the criminals, rather than like giving really severe punishments to the relatively few that we catch, which is kind of what we're doing now. Uh, anyway, okay, so, you know, deterrence is relevant, um, but also, like, I mean, I argue that um, retribution has, has to have something to do with it, because it's okay to punish somebody who actually did the crime, and it's not okay to punish somebody who didn't do the crime, but who is believed by the public to have done it. And if you... You mean, like, making an example of someone, yeah. even though they didn't do it. Yeah, right? Like, so say, say that this person... You know, like, let's say Kyle Rittenhouse is widely believed to have been guilty. And, you know, but you know that he's not guilty, which is a totally realistic example if you, if you were in the trial. So anyway, and then you're like, OK, so he's believed to be guilty. So if I punish him, that's going to create a deterrent effect. Other people are going to say, see, you know, murderers get punished. So then I don't want to come in and murder. Okay. And, um, you know, almost everyone, maybe if I maybe if I didn't mention that it was Kyle Rittenhouse I was talking about, almost everyone would agree, no, you can't punish the innocent person um, just to create a deterrent. So, but that's not to say that retribution is the whole story. It's just to say that it's a necessary condition on just punishment. Um, and, you know, and like, so, and uh, most people agree that um, there's some kind of proportionality requirement. So... You know, retributive punishment, like punishing somebody because they deserve to be punished because they did something bad. Um, it, in order to be just, it has to be roughly proportionate to the crime. Like you can't give somebody a punishment that's like a thousand times worse than the thing that they did. Uh, and we're not exactly doing that, but we might be giving punishments that are a hundred times worse than the thing the person did. Right. right. You know, like a, you know, a case where a guy forges a check and then he winds up uh, with a life sentence or something like this. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that's that's thousands of times worse. Well, let's 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 go from the kind of walk through some of the places of injustice that you that you're pointing out, um, because it 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 still is interesting how how rogue this seems seems to me that, that everyone's kind of empowered in in Mike Humor's world to rogue be rogue enforcers of senses of justice. Um, so let's so let's start at the law level. Um, uh, there are unjust unjust laws that are being enforced. So that's, that's kind of where it starts. And so then the prosecutors, in your view, the prosecutors, cops, other actors in the system have a moral obligation to ignore those laws. Right. Yeah. The duty to disregard the law. Yeah. 
So like, uh, you know, police should not arrest people for drug crimes. It's morally wrong. And like arresting somebody for a drug crime um, is morally comparable to kidnapping a random person on the street and like, you know, holding them captive in a cage for a, a few years. All right. Now, what about uh, the attorneys in this situation? Yeah. And then, like, you know, like a prosecutor, if he receives that case, he should refuse to prosecute it. Of course, he's going to lose his job. <laughs> and like, uh, and the prosecutor and the cop will probably lose their job if it becomes known that they do this. But um, that's comparable to saying, you know, like a mafia employee is going to lose their job if they don't murder people. <laughs> well, true. this goes, this, <laughs> I mean, your previous book, The Problem of Political Authority, do we have to assume that there is no such thing as political authority for this thesis? Because the at least the idea is that the laws passed, like sometimes a democratic, legitimate government will pass unjust laws and that therefore the people who enforce those laws are playing a role that is under, like that is some sort of conceptually, metaphorically underneath the the passing of laws of which we presuppose that not every law will be just. And so the, where you fix it is up here, not not down here. If if your if your job, if your legitimacy as an actor is to work for the state and enforce the laws that the state passes via legitimate methods, unless we deny the legitimacy of those laws, like even unjust laws. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, well, I want to say like I don't want to distinguish two theses, right? So in in the debate about political authority, there's a the common thesis of political obligation that you're obligated to follow the law. Um, but like what's at issue here is a, a stronger idea that you're obligated to actually help to enforce the law, right? So like a cop by refusing to arrest people who refusing to arrest drug criminals is not actually violating the law. He's just failing to enforce the law. So like the political obligation thesis entails that, well, they shouldn't be using the drugs, but it doesn't entail that you should arrest them for doing it, right? So, okay. Um, and yeah, and like it's similar for the other actors. Like uh, a prosecutor is not legally required to prosecute someone if he doesn't think that the prosecution is just. And then you know, like a jury isn't legally required to uh, convict someone, you know, even if they know that the person committed the crime, you know, even if that was proven beyond reasonable doubt, etc. Totally legal for them to say no, we're acquitting because we just don't agree with the law. <laughs> and by the way, like actually, that like that's part of our system. Actually, that's kind of like why we have the jury system, like so that they could do that. And so, you know, you're, yeah. What about the, the, I want to get back into the attorneys as someone who who went to law school. It also seems to entail from your thesis that the the defense attorneys, I mean, the prosecutors too, but there's different moral obligations purportedly on the, on the two. So the, the prosecutors are supposed to do justice. That actually is in the prosecutorial, you know, Code. Yeah, yeah, not that they yeah, actually, which, which it would, yeah, but that is because they and so, uh, but the defense attorneys are are obliged to zealously represent their clients to the fullest extent of the law as an agent within the system to use all the tools that have been kind of given to them from on high in this metaphor. Uh, now it seems that it would follow that a defense attorney who zealously tries to acquit a person they believe is guilty is also performing a wrong. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's clearly obviously wrong. <laughs> okay, now um, lawyers are often outraged by this thesis. But anyway, 
Um, you know, like let me give an analogy. So let's say that you have a friend who, you know, this is a good friend who confesses to you that he is a serial murderer. And after confessing this, you know, like you try to convince him not to commit any murders, but he, he won't promise not to do commit any. But he's not at where he's telling you that he will, but he won't promise not to. But what he would like you to do is help him get away with his most recent murder. Like give, just give him helpful advice on where to hide the body or how to elude police or whatever, whatever. Okay, what should you do? Like, obviously you cannot help him. <laughs> you should call the police immediately. <laughs> or, you know, like as soon as, as soon as he's out of the room, right? So he won't get mad at you and kill you, but you should call the police and get him arrested because otherwise there's a high chance that he murders more people and it's going to be your fault. And now, how is this different if he paid you to help him get away with his crime? <laughs> well, and you're a professional help criminals get away with crimes person. Like that's your job. <laughs> well, the difference is, is again, I keep, could we not to keep going back to this rule of law idea, but a defense attorney's job in one conception of it is to ensure that the government has to go through and you brought it up like the hot, the, all the burdens to convict someone and put them into a cage or, or maybe even execute them. And it's not just their client. It's the laws as applied by, you know, the nature of the rule of law system we have, which, which says, so yes, the cops illegally searched this guy, found a body in the trunk. Uh, but we need to make it clear that the illegal search is not allowed and that will affect other people down the line, which is very different than your friend. Like I'm not, you know, if, if I'm hiding, if I'm telling my friend how to get away with murder, that's very different because it's not like that becomes a rule that is applied in future cases and can do grave injustice if applied by prosecutors, by the Supreme Court in future iterations where the where that person is innocent yeah, yeah. and you need to and you try to exclude that evidence. Yeah, yeah. So like people sometimes say this about, you know, why you have to zealously defend your client because it's good for society or something like that. But I would note that they don't in fact believe that. So, right, so if there's a case in which the interests of your client conflict with the interests of other defendants, you're supposed to serve your client, right? So let's suppose that, like, the police have done something wrong and you could file a lawsuit or whatever. The government did something wrong. You could file a lawsuit, which would not be in your client's interest, right? For, and you could imagine reasons why this would be the case. Like, it'll cost him more money or, like, he can make a deal to, to, with the government, which will be advantageous to him if he agrees to drop his lawsuit or whatever, but it will be in the interest of the rest of society and other defendants if you file this lawsuit. You're supposed to not do it because it serves the interest of your client, right? Which shows that, no, actually this whole ethic about defense attorneys isn't based upon helping other defendants or helping society in general. And now, and I have an explanation of why we have this ethic. It's because it's in the interest of defense attorneys. Because your product is more valuable if you if you get to say, I'm just going to serve your interests, like the interest of the person who's paying me money, right? And, you know, no matter what, no matter how bad you are, you know, then your product is more valuable so you can charge more money. I I I still think that so we're missing this this so we might need to abridge the defense attorney code of ethics to say you might even need to sometimes work against the interests of your client, but sometimes when the interests of your client, which could include getting them off of a murder rap that they almost assuredly did, 
does serve the interests of other defendants. I mean, so so we might need to say sometimes they need to act affirmatively against their client's interests, but that doesn't follow that therefore they they should never act to acquit their clients if the government hasn't gone through the proper procedures to muster the evidence to properly properly convict their client. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, I do want to clarify that, like, my thesis isn't you should never defend guilty people. My thesis isn't you shouldn't. My thesis is that you should not intentionally pursue injustice. All right. So if you, if, like, if you believe that getting somebody acquitted who is actually guilty um, produces more justice overall, then that's ethical. Okay. However, I would, a po- that's a possibility. There, I could imagine such a situation. Yeah. So, and so, like, especially if the law itself is unjust, then yes, then getting the guilty person acquitted is more just, right? Uh, but also, you know, there, like, you could argue that somehow getting the guilty person acquitted is going to, like, um, you know, send such a message to the government to not commit abuse in future cases that it will reduce the amount of rights violations or something. However, I do think that that's kind of a tenuous argument, right? It's pretty speculative. And so, you know, like if, like, if it's like you're trying to get a murderer acquitted and then, you know, after you get him acquitted, then he goes out and kills three more people before he's eventually caught and put in prison. Um, like then you say, yeah, but, you know, maybe that prevents some other rights violations by the government. That's really kind of weak. <laughs> So if it were, if it was a more minor crime, then you can make the case better, right? So do you have a? It also seems, in, and it's in the book that one thing that's entailed here is challenging the whole profession of lawyer of being a lawyer, and the licensing system and everything that goes into making the legal system more expensive. Uh, is that that is a relevant concern too here? Yeah, you know, like um. You know, as I, as I was suggesting a, a little bit ago, um, some of the some of the conventional legal ethics doctrine, I think, is designed to maximize the benefit of lawyers. And uh, and part of why this would happen is that oh well, conventional legal ethics principles are written by lawyers. <laughs> it's like there's a conflict of interest there. Anyway, so but I'd like to bring up this point. Like, so here's something that I found in the ABA model rules of professional conduct that um, you can't reveal a um, confidential information of your client that's detrimental to your client, uh, even if doing so would, you know, serve the interests of society, prevent like innocent people from being murdered or prevent innocent people from being convicted for a crime. Like if somebody else is on trial for a crime that you know your client committed, you're not supposed to reveal that you know your client committed it. However, you may reveal confidential information that your client told you if doing so is necessary to collect your fee. (laughs) So like, let's say you know about your client having like, you know, hidden some money illegally or something. And uh, if... If revealing that information would um, enable somebody else to collect money from your client, you can't do that. But if it would enable you to collect money from your client, you can do it. <laughs> so I think that just shows. This is true. I could confirm. Yes. <laughs> well, look, I'm not going to be. I'm going to be the last to defend lawyers, even as one myself, especially when you look at the rules that they write for themselves. But you know, back to a similar point here about confidentiality. Uh, if we took, if it's important that a 
a defendant needs to be able to confide and trust their attorney that their attorney will not decide based on their own sense of justice when they can and can't reveal confidence to, to, to whoever, prosecutors, cops, whatever, um, then you undercut the entire system of trust, uh, which is quite important to, so, I mean, maybe that means that there's, there's hard cases. There's, well, there's easy cases. There's guy told me he's going to murder again, although that actually is an exception to legal ethics. Like if, if there's an imminent thing, but I, you know, I, I know something that will prevent harm and I'm going to break that confidential thing. And I will still generally adhere to the rule, but on these, these non, these fairly obvious preventing injustice, like breakings of confidence, but, but generally you shouldn't do it, uh, in order to preserve the system of confidence. Uh, would that be acceptable with, within, if you're, if it's unclear to you, if it's unclear to you where the justice lies, you should err on the side of preserving the confidence to preserve the system itself. But when it's clear to you, you probably should break confidence. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Like I don't, I don't quite see why it's so important for criminals to be able to trust their lawyer and like to trust their lawyer so much that they can confess to blatant crimes. Um, like, so, you know, what if we had a system in which after you commit a heinous crime, you can't confide in anyone because anyone will be obligated to turn you in, including lawyers? Why would that be worse? Wouldn't that be better? In terms of, yeah, in terms of, so if we're assuming everything else for your system, so the, the crime itself is a real crime, it's it's an actual injustice perpetrated, a rights violation of other people, and therefore punishment is warranted. And so anyone who has information to that, whether or not they're an attorney, is obliged to try and remedy that injustice. Yeah. Now, so, I mean, you might be worried about cases where it's unclear, like the client might not know whether he did something wrong or more precisely, he might not know whether his attorney would consider his action to be wrong. Right. And then so and then he might be unsure whether he can confide in his friend. Okay, like there's some cases like that. Um, but I don't know. I don't see why this is such a big problem. And like, you know, in comparison with the majority of cases in which it's pretty clear. I would also note that like I'm pretty sure defense attorneys are going to be extremely biased in favor of defendants. Right. So like if you're not sure whether even a defense attorney would think that you did something wrong, it was probably wrong. <laughs> you know. And so like I'm yeah, I'm not all that worried about that. Like, why are we not worried about all the harm that could be caused by, you know, all these criminals? You know? As the primary thing, yes. Uh, but so the the other side of this, the prosecutorial ethics, um, I imagine that you don't believe in immunity for misconduct on beha- on the behalf yeah. of yeah. prosecutors. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Even I, good I faith. I wanted to say, like, the, the remedy if the government um, misbehaved is that the government should be punished. Not that the defendant should go free or, or, you know, like exclude the evidence that they collected. You should just punish the people who broke the rules, but then, but then still punish the criminal. Anyway, go on. Well, it makes sense. Again, if we, if we take your view from the kind of top on down, because the prosecutors in this situation are not imbued with any obligation to enforce laws that they don't think are just, Although again, I'm, I find it interesting how a prosecutor should treat a 
very a, a close case in this situation. When, when can you resort like resort to some theory of authority or ethics to decide to prosecute when you're not it's maybe not clear to you that things should be a crime, but you're not confident in yourself to make that determination? Is there there's is there no situation where you can resort to a separate body of ethics or role-playing ethics, as I'm asking in this, to tell you what you should do. And if if there is no such situation, that's, again, going back to what I said about jurors, it's asking a lot of, of people yeah. uh, in their ethical systems. Yeah, no, that's true. But I mean, like, it's just that some situations um, ask a lot of people, right? Like, if you're in a situation of deciding the fate of somebody where, you know, whether their life is going to be totally ruined or not, well, that's a demanding situation. And like there, you know, your ethics shouldn't say that you can take that lightly and like not, not putting a lot of effort to find out if you're doing the right thing. Okay. But now anyway, like your question was about, um, you know, if it's unclear whether a person should be punished for something, like maybe you're not sure whether the law is just or unjust. And I generally think if you're unsure, you should probably err on the side of not punishing the person. So like if there's a serious question about whether the law, is, is unjust, um, you should probably just not prosecute those cases. Um, yeah, that was that, right? And, and, I, 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 think that's, I think that's probably true. I mean, yeah, um, and, you know, the rationale is it's worse to punish someone unjustly than it is to fail to punish someone justly, right? Like if there's a time when you could have punished someone and it would have been just, but you didn't punish them, okay, that's bad. But it's not as bad as a time when you punish someone and it was unjust. Right. And so that's why you should err on the side of not punishing. It's interesting because your book focuses on actors within the criminal justice system, but kind of given the straightforwardness of your thesis, many listeners might be wondering if, if your thesis gives obligations to even normal people to either even outside of say serving on a jury, because definitely you think, you know, serving on a jury, you have an obligation, but does it, does there, is there an obligation of resistance that would come in say of not talking to cops when they ask you, where did someone go uh, based on the idea that the drug war is wrong or something like that, that you had, there's some affirmative duty of even resistance to individual citizens in the criminal justice system. Yeah. I mean, that seems right to me too. Like, I mean, if, if the cops are enforcing an unjust law, then you should not help them. And you're not legally required to, so you're not going to be in trouble. So, like, that's not an unreasonable request, right? Not an unreasonable demand. Um, should average citizens presume that they're enforcing unjust laws? That they're, I mean, your, your book is a pretty damning in, indictment of the entire system from top to bottom to the point that it seems that the presumption should be resistance by anyone who at all kind of touches on the criminal justice system, whether that's being questioned by cops, obviously in a jury situation, being a witness for a prosecution, should someone lie on the witness stand if the prosecution that is happening is for an unjust law? Oh, uh, um, should you lie? I mean, I mean, the only issue there is that you could potentially get in trouble, although I think that would be rare. I think it would be very improbable. So maybe that isn't a big concern. But, but yeah, so like clearly you shouldn't like, you know, gratuitously help an unjust prosecution, right? Like if there's, if there's, if you can stymie the prosecution with minimal cost yourself, you should do so. Um, of course, like, 
you know, you could just get out of testifying by making it clear in advance of what you were going to say. And then, and then they won't call you. So I'm trying to figure out what our listeners will take away from that. That's what I was asking you about in terms of, you know, what kind of approach they should take to the criminal justice system. Uh, is there, I mean, you're not a policy guy. So, that, you know, in terms of reform, is there any way to fix some of this stuff? Uh, maybe the maybe the biggest one could be jury nullification uh, in terms of practicality without without much danger. There's no there's no danger if you do serve on a jury and you want to acquit against the evidence, you cannot be charged in any way. Um, is there anything else that you think yeah. is like I mean, low hanging like, fruit? Yeah. So this is my advice for possible jurors. So first of all, you have to lie in order to get on the jury. So you have to pretend that you don't believe in jury nullification and that you will uphold the law no matter what. Now, this is because judges are, um, you know, bad and because judges are undermining the system as it was designed to work by telling people that they can't do jury nullification, right? So anyway, and then excluding people, you know, illegitimately. But anyway, okay, so after you lie to get on the jury, then also in the jury room, you should pretend to not believe the factual evidence either. And I say this because there was a case in which a juror was removed and replaced with an alternate by the judge because he was advocating jury nullification. And then, and then there were some appeals, you know, about whether this was an error on the part of the trial judge. And then, um, and the decision that came down was it was an error to remove that juror, but not because, you know, not because of jury nullification, but because in addition to advocating jury nullification, that juror was also saying that he didn't believe the factual evidence. And, and so it wasn't error to remove him because that might have made a difference to the, uh, the trial and such. So you should pretend to not be convinced by the factual evidence, possibly in addition to um, thinking the law is unjust. Right? Um, but anyway, um, and then, um, you know, like it's easy to get out of jury duty, which most people uh, want to do by just mentioning jury nullification, but it's morally better to get on by pretending that you don't believe in jury nullification. And then, and, you know, like do some justice. Um, of course, like most cases, I think most cases are not unjust prosecutions. Maybe, maybe only a third of cases are unjust prosecutions. So two thirds of the time, they actually did something wrong. Um, what else? What else was I going to say? Like, oh, and like, you know, obviously we need to reform the, um, we need to reform the system. Like, judges should not be allowed to give people these erroneous instructions. Like, judges are constantly telling people that they can't do jury nullification, which is a lie, and is recognized by judges to be a lie. <laughs> they know that you can do it, and it's legally valid if you do it, but they don't say that. And like, the, you know, the jury members should be informed of this. And other actors probably have some, maybe some similar type of obligations in your view, such as, so if a cop explicitly said, it is my intention to not enforce all the drug laws of this jurisdiction and other unjust laws as I deem fit, he's probably not going to go very far in the uh, professional world of, of being a police officer. So in that situation, should you lie about your commitment to enforcing unjust laws in order to be put into a place where you can actually decide yeah. not to enforce unjust laws. <laughs> yes. Yes, you should do that. So, I mean, you know, probably no one's going to ask you that because it's not going to occur to them. So, but you know, you should not volunteer the information that you don't believe in the drug laws. Right? And then you should just like not find any drug criminals. Right. Um, now I think you might still like, uh, you might still eventually lose your job for like not, not arresting enough people or something. Right? 
you know, not clearing up cases. Um, you know, but but like still, that's better than being complicit in severe injustice. So if it fully fully taken your thesis. Uh, is law like totally irrelevant? I'm sorry, is it? Is is it completely irrelevant? Does it lack anything beyond justice? Like, is it? Have, it doesn't have any characteristics. It's like they get. So we talked about this beginning, but it's still not that yeah. we flushed it out. No, yeah, it has no characteristics that matter beyond its justness or in unjustice. Yeah, so I don't want to say that exactly. Like, you know, that like what the law says is completely irrelevant. I don't want to say that. Uh, I think what the law says can be morally relevant. Like what you should do is determined by morality, which exists independent of the law, but legal facts can influence the moral facts, right? And so like, uh, you know, the example I like to give, and um, I don't know, like, you know, pro-law people are not satisfied, but this, this isn't going far enough for them. But anyway, here's the example. Like I buy some land and then there's a question of whether I get to drill for oil on my land. And, um, you know, like, like there's, you know, my, my neighbor doesn't want me to drill for oil because he's an environmentalist or whatever. Okay. And then, so whether I'm allowed to do it, I think is partly dependent on what the law says, you know, unless I have a contract, you know, that said that I get to drill or that I don't get to drill, which it probably didn't say. Um, it's the, then what, what I get to do is partly determined by what the law says, because that is what I should have assumed that I was agreeing to when I bought the land, right? Like at the time that I bought the land, even if I didn't look up the law, I would have known that if I looked it up, whatever it said, that was what I should be, I should expect that I'm getting when I buy it, right? And so that's why the law influences what is the just resolution of that. But that's the, the morality or immorality of that situation is less clear than what the, the most of the things that we've been discussing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, like, there are some things that are not determined, you know, by independently existing moral facts. They're not determined by natural law, so to speak. And so they have to be settled by um, human made positive law. Um, but, you know, the human made positive law can't just reject, you know, clear moral principles like, the, you know, you can't just make a law that says people don't own themselves. And, you know, and therefore, like, you can enslave other people. Right. Uh, you can't do that because that's just violating independence. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.